Okay, so for our next speaker, we're very pleased to welcome Corneille Conradi. Corneille is a fellow of the Actuarial Society of South Africa um, and the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries, and he's the partner that's responsible for actuarial banking risk for PwC Africa. Over the past 10 years, he's gained experience in various forms of financial modeling, including bank impairment, capital and stress testing, life insurance, reserving, and financial instrument valuation. So thank you very much, Corneille, and we, we look forward to your talk. Um, so I'm going to touch now on the other side of it. Uh, so you've heard about insurance liquidity risk, and that is certainly a big risk in, in banking. Um, from a stress testing perspective, I'm going to touch on just the background. So the US have their views on stress testing, the UK have their views on stress testing, and then there's a prudential authority in the Reserve Bank uh, that tends to follow what, what happens in, in Europe as well. So I'll just briefly touch um, on what's on the horizon. Then I'll um, discuss the South African market, because context here is, is very important, and then just go through two examples. So bank is a very complex organization, and there's many different components, uh, but the two key areas are credit risk and, and deposits. So I'll just touch on how modeling um, can typically be done uh, from a stress-testing perspective. So first of all, where does the, the risk sit in, in a bank? And this is based on actual balance sheet, um, so I'm not going to say which bank was, was chosen, but the big four banks in South Africa all have a very similar uh, profile. So the risk um, in the banking sector in South Africa, at least, uh, sits in very similar areas. So you'll notice the two big orange blocks, loans and advances. So all the loans out there, that's really where, where the asset sits. So the, the main asset of a bank is all of those deposits they've lent out, converted into to loans and advances, that's where they generate their profit and that's where their asset base sits. On the flip side, um, the big banks all fund the, uh, the loans through deposits. Now that's retail deposits, that's wholesale deposits, that's government deposits and also deposits between banks. And that is where the, the key risk also sits from a liquidity perspective because that deposit base uh, can rapidly disappear. You have fixed deposits but the vast majority of those deposits in a heartbeat. If there's a loss of confidence in the system, then those deposits disappear and suddenly you have a, a hole that cannot be filled, even by a lender of last resort. Then the smaller items, not necessarily much less significant, uh, you'll see trading portfolio assets and liabilities. Now, post the 2008 crisis, that's predominantly client assets. So you go to the bank, uh, you have a shared trading portfolio, you invest in a fund, um, and the bank is the middleman in, in that case. So in most cases, those two should be fairly well matched. So if there is a problem on the asset side, the clients are going to suffer on, on the liability side. But before 2008, the, the banks had large uh, proprietary trading exposures. And what that means is the bank is taking a position in the market, and a lot of that was derivatives. Um, so if you remember back to, to the CTs, there's unlimited losses. So if you take a position against the market, it rapidly grows or drops with derivatives, you can suffer near unlimited losses. So that's why all the banks globally and also in South Africa have cut down a lot on their proprietary trading books. So from a market risk perspective, it is much better managed after 2008. Then there's um, investment securities. Um, so the banks um, invest in various things. So some of the banks uh, own insurers and companies and they have private equity books where they develop new companies. 
they have quite a bit of um, investments in, in cash type assets, so interest bearing securities, treasury bills, uh, bonds, corporate bonds, um, so fairly safe um, investments that they make. Um, and then on the liability side again, there's a debt securities an issue. So the big banks are mostly funded uh, through deposits, but there is always a hole you need to fill. You can't always fully fund yourself simply through deposits. So they issue bonds um, in the market and they raise funding uh, from the wholesale market. Now that is also where you need to top it up. So if there is for some reason a drop in deposits in the market, uh, the banks don't stop lending. They go and borrow money um, and then that they also lend out. So they borrow at a low rate because there's a bank balance sheet that supports the borrowing and then they can lend it out to you to buy a house uh, at a higher rate and they can still make profit, although the profit margins are a lot less. So one of the key risks of bank face in terms of profitability is if that mix starts changing. So if you can't fund it through cheap deposits, your bottom line is going to start taking um, a knock. And then there's a whole bunch of other um, small assets in there that's not really significant. And then at the top right, you see equity. So that's really the capital, the, the high quality assets that's there to absorb losses. And, and that is how the capital um, is held. So that really paints the picture. But um, even within each category, there's a lot of things to consider. So loans and advances, big asset that sits there, but you have home loans where your money is locked in for 20 years. You have overdrafts that can be used at a moment's notice. You have vehicle loans um, and other asset-based finance is very dependent on, on the prices of, of those items. So even within deposits um, and, and loans, there's many, many different categories and many different risk factors um, driving it. So from a stress testing perspective, there's two main approaches to, to follow. Um, the first is a top-down approach, and that is where you take um, all data at an aggregate level, and from a top-down perspective, you say mortgages as a whole, um, overdrafts as a whole, retail deposits as a whole. How does it behave? Um, you still need to include interactions and make sure that all the components talk to one another, but it's really done from a very high-level uh, perspective. And that is often used within the banks uh, as a sense check. So sometimes the Prudential Authority pitches up and say, says, well, we have an imminent downgrade, what does it do to your bank? And you need a fairly quick answer to that. And in that case, a, a top-down model is useful to, to get a very quick answer. Um, it needs to be good enough to still give you a credible answer, but it is a, a quick and dirty exercise. Regulators also use top-down models to check all the submissions. Um, so in South Africa, there's about 36 banks. Um, they all submit um, stress testing results and, and ICAPs. So you need a quick way to, to check that. And going through each one individually and checking it in a detailed fashion is, is not feasible. So a top-down model is a useful tool to, to sense check what you're getting. Then you have bottom-up stress testing. And that is getting into the, the nuts and bolts of it. So that's taking all 10 million customers of a bank, looking at their specific loans, looking at their specific deposits, modeling behavior from month to month. Um, and it's a very data-intensive and calculation-intensive exercise, but that does give you the most accurate answer. Now, typically, that also takes very long to run. So you can imagine if you have 10 million customers, um, transaction data, um, monthly snapshots of what's happening to that book, uh, running that kind of model, uh, is, is very difficult. Um, so it is very complex, very comprehensive models, but it gives you a good answer, 
Um, and it works in conjunction with the top-down models. So within a bank, uh, you have uh, the top-down models and they typically uh, related to the bottom-up models in some way. So once or twice a year, you go through the exercise of collecting data, running your bottom-up models, getting your results, um, and then you'll make sure that your top-down models are, are aligned to that. So you really need both. It's not one or the other. Um, I often get a question, well, if you have a good top-down model that gives you a credible answer, why do you even bother with the whole exercise to, to get the detailed results? But the two are, are interrelated. You won't know if your top-down model is no longer working if you don't go through, through the detailed exercise. Now, in UK and the US, so what tends to happen is that the Reserve Bank follows what's happening in, in Europe. So uh, the EBA, uh, the UK um, the regulatory authority, they tend to come up with regulations and guidelines and then the Prudential Authority tends to follow that. So we've had all the, the Basel implementation in terms of capital, Basel IV is in the process of being um, implemented. Um, and the next regulation that is coming is, is stress testing. Now, what is very different between what's being done in South Africa and the US um, and Europe is the level of detail. So if you pick up um, EBA and Federal Reserve papers, you'll see that the, the UK and the US are very prescriptive in terms of how stress testing should be done. So they go down to the level of specific assumptions to tell you if you do a stress test and for some reason your new business drops, that assumption should not happen. Uh, you can't change the mix of your book, so they are very prescriptive in terms of the methods, the level of granularity and the assumptions you need to make. Um, the Reserve Bank here is not yet that prescriptive. So they provide a scenario um, and you need to highlight exactly what happens to the bank, but they are not entirely prescriptive in terms of how you do that. Now, the U.S. is also similar. They've gone further in that the Federal Reserve have built their own bottom-up model. So the banks submit account-level information to the Federal Reserve, and they run it through their, their own models. So they not only specify how the banks should do stress testing, they actually run a challenger model um, in terms of stress testing. The U.K. have a, a top-down model as well. So it's called a Ramsey model. Um, it's built off aggregate data, but they have... Um, published papers and information how that model was developed. Um, so the banks know when they submit the stress testing results, there's going to be a model in place that, that checks it. So what is coming to South Africa is the same kind of guidance and, and detailed requirements to say this is how you do bottom-up stress testing. These are the exact requirements you need to take into account. Um, and then the regulator over time will also build up the capabilities to say here's our independent top-down model does your result um, actually make sense? Now, what does the South African market look like? So I mentioned there's 36 banks in, in South Africa, but no surprise that the vast majority of it is concentrated in really five, five big entities. And if you start adding a, a Capitech and an African bank to that, then that other drops even, even less. So in terms of loans being granted, in, in the market, there's lots of uh, banks granting loans. But if you focus on, on the biggest five entities that provide the full range of products, um, then you, you pretty much have it from a systemic risk perspective, um, at least. Loan types, you can also see that it's fairly concentrated. So mortgages are, are really big due to the sheer size of the loans. So you don't find many tiny homes. So just by virtue of the average size of the loans, those exposures are, are very big and highly illiquid. 
um, and also subject to, to much more risk. So there is a slide that shows the historic default rates, but your average defaulted population for home loans hovers around 2%. Around 2008, that spiked around 10%. So you get um, a much bigger ramp up in, in risk in, in the mortgage uh, portfolios. The unsecured portfolios start off with much higher risk, but you don't find that it ramps up to the extent uh, that mortgages ramp up. And mortgages are also subject to the risk of a property market. So if a property market crashes, suddenly your collateral is gone and very low uh, losses go to enormous losses fairly quickly. Second biggest category in there is, is overdrafts. Now that's a whole mix of things. That is public sector borrowing, that's companies borrowing, that's individuals borrowing, but it's all kinds of, of revolving credit and that can also rapidly change. So you have your facility available and you can go and use that facility. So there is a fair amount of risk in terms of those overdraft exposures because when you're in a crisis, um, if you need cash, um, you're going to get it from those overdraft facilities. So your exposure can, can rapidly um, ramp up. Then the, the installment sales, that's, a lot of that is vehicles, equipment, um, that's a bit smaller. Um, and credit cards, strangely enough, is, is not that big because companies would tend to fund through, through overdraft. So we wouldn't have massive credit card ex exposure. So it's because it's mostly the government and companies that use the overdrafts that that is so much bigger than, than credit cards. Now, the deposit side, also very similar. So very much concentrated um, in the biggest five banks. So it's really in those five entities where, where most of the, the risk sits. Um, and the main risk there is, is confidence in the system. So if everyone decides to go and withdraw their cash, it's locked in in those home loans and those overdrafts, so there's no way to get it out. Um, so it's those five entities we should really be worried about um, in terms of a stress. In terms of the type of deposits, it's much better spread out. So you can see all the, the retail deposits, government deposits, um, financial institutions. So there's a fairly big deposit base in terms of um, insurers and asset managers. Um, and then also your, your companies um, and banks. They deposit amongst one another um, as well. So that, that's the pool that is available to, to fund all of these loans. Um, now, loans and deposits, that's been the two key areas you, you need to model from a stress-assessing perspective. You need to worry about the, the market risk and you need to worry about operational risk and all the other items on the balance sheet. Uh, but as a start, you need to make sure those two, two big ticket items are covered. Now, the key thing we want to link it to is uh, the economy. Now, this is just a, a short list of, of factors to, to consider. Uh, but the, the key point is also that all of these economic factors are very much correlated. So you find different kinds of stresses. So you find deflationary stresses and you find hyperinflationary stresses, low interest, low, high interest, low credit being extended. So there's various scenarios that can play out. But barring a few key variables, uh, the rest of the variables would, would tend to follow that. So whether you use five or 10 or 100 uh, variables, you often find that there's two or three per category that, that really drives uh, the risk. So you can expand it <coughs> as much as you want, but you need to make sure that the, the key, key areas are, are really covered um, and that you hit the, the risk during the, the stress period. Um, the kind of scenarios that, that come up um, is typically related to, to topical issues. So what the regulators would see is 
there's imminent risk of a, a downgrade and then go and ask the banks, okay, what happens in the case of a downgrade? Or um, currency depreciation, um, so if for some reason the rand were to rip rapidly depreciate or we had trouble with our trading partners, um, it's typically real-world scenarios that the regulators take and then tell the banks, here's a scenario, you need to tell us what happens to your business um, under that scenario and, and how does that stress practically play out. Um, so even though it's, it's a stress test, um, the scenarios are always in some way linked um, to uh, real economic conditions and, and the regulators use, like to use past economic events. Because the regulations are typically written after the fact to prevent, it the, prevent the previous crisis. So after 2008, all the scenarios focus around the global financial crisis, derivatives, um, and those kind of things. So to make sure that now after the fact all the banks are, are still fine and then you find that the next crisis surprises you and it's a new risk that, that comes forward. There's also a feedback loop. So if the banks submit uh, their results and the regulator finds that one or more banks are particularly vulnerable to a certain factor, then the next stress, um, there's a high likelihood that the stress would focus on that area. So uh, it's a continuous search to say where, where's the vulnerabilities in the banks and then the regulators hone in on that to, to make sure that those risks are adequately covered and that the banks think about those risks. Now, some specific um, examples. So I mentioned um, mortgages as one of the, the biggest areas. Um, so the solid line is actual proportion of a market that was in default as at any point in time. So you can see around 2008 spiked around 10%. Um, and since then, it has been coming um, down. So we in one of the, the longest um, cycles, in credit cycles, in terms of low default rates and, and low losses being suffered, but the, the cracks are, are beginning to show. Uh, we can see that the consumers are under more strain. We can see the, the actual default starting to tick up for more risky sub-segments. Uh, people are defaulting more. So there's definite strain. So the, the question and the relevance of stress testing is if that next spike hits, what, what happens? And just for background, and this is an actual model um, that was built. So it took all of those macroeconomic factors and it said based on the economic conditions, um, how do you use all of those economic conditions to take uh, the market as a whole um, and predict those actual default rates coming through? And, and the dotted line is, is the, the fitted um, result. So it's a bit more volatile because you have those individual economic factors, GDP spikes and goes up and interest rates goes up and down. So it's a bit more um, volatile than purely looking at the total volume of defaulted loans in the market. Um, but you can from this see what are the key economic factors um, that drive um, the credit risk um, and then also which bank is more vulnerable because you can go and apply this it's still at a top-down model level, you can still apply it to each individual institution. So you can see whether Standard Bank or APSA or FNB um, is more, more vulnerable. Now, some modeling is a bit harder to do. So here's two more examples. So you can see for um, secured credit, uh, so that's very much uh, vehicle loans, um, equipment, very fairly, fairly stable. You can predict it fairly well, but unsecured credit behaves in, in a very different way. And what you need to bear in mind with stress testing, it's not just the economy that comes in, there's lots of human behavior. So the model in this case predicted around 2008, there should have been um, a lot of stress um, in the unsecured market, but in fact there wasn't. Um, 
And there's a few reasons for that, but one of the primary reasons is that unsecured credit, the providers have much better levers. So shorter term loans, they could see the trouble coming and they pulled back on risk appetite. So if you stop giving risky people loans, you are going to manage that actual default risk downwards. So for, for unsecured credit, where you're not locked in for many years, um, the actual behavior of the bank and, and the consumers is also very important to, to bear in mind. Uh, because they'll actually actively during a stress period, if the bank has control over the, the products and they can cut uh, credit card limits and not issue new loans, they can actively manage their credit risk downwards during deteriorating conditions, purely because they have all of those levers in place. Whereas things where you're locked in, a vehicle loan, home loan, you're locked in. If once the economic strain hits, you're along for the ride and you can't do anything about it. For deposits, um, there's two main drivers to, to consider. Now, the first is uh, the market as a whole. So this just takes retail deposits, um, and there's a lot going on on this graph, but the key thing to note is that it can be very volatile. Um, so for a single uh, month, you could have severe up and, and down movements. And that is people, they have money in a, a savings account, they go and make a big purchase, or they're strained and you need to you lose your job and you need to fund things from that. Um, so you can see it's more volatile during a, a stress period, but it's not just a prolonged um, downwards move where everyone just goes and withdraws it month after month. There's spikes and ups and downs, and it also tends to, to reverse fairly quickly. So what you really want to, what you're interested in is, is those downward spikes um, and how long they are. Because if you hit a few consecutive months of, of withdrawals happening, then you very quickly get into liquidity problems and the banks then also need to go and fund the gap. So they need to go and uh, raise wholesale funding to, to fund the, the gap. Now, in terms of modeling, um, the immediate sense would be to try and, and, and model at an aggregate level. So you go and fit a GLM model or a regression model. Um, and in this case, uh, the line going through the middle, so the red line is, is a regression. And when you look at deposits in total, it does a very good job of predicting over a slightly longer period um, what kind of volume of deposits would be in the entire market, but what it doesn't do at all is show you those dips um, and spikes. So from a forecasting perspective to do your budgeting, it is very useful to do stress testing and find out what's going to cause a potential rapid drop in, in your deposit volumes, it's much less so. Um, so an alternative model was fitted that doesn't get the average right so well, but if you look at the bottom there um, where the black line dips, uh, it is much better at actually predicting where those, those drops happen. So you need a different mindset in terms of stress testing. So you're not trying to get the average perfectly right, you're trying to predict what causes stress and then what leads to, to strain. But that's only one part of a puzzle for an individual institution. So that, this is the entire market and it moves up and down and people deposit and, and withdraw. But for an individual institution, um, there's also a, a fair amount going on. So this is the actual uh, retail deposit market share uh, for, for the biggest five banks that I mentioned. And even though um, there's long periods where it's stable, you can see there's fairly severe spikes and, and dips as people move money between institutions. So if you combine a drop in the overall market deposits with a sudden drop in market share for an individual bank, then you have a, a stress on your hands and then you have 
at the, the best case scenario, you're going to lose a bit of profit. Worst case scenario, you have a liquidity problem. So you need to tackle it from both angles. Um, and looking at bank market share, um, this doesn't really follow the, the economy at all. So this is the action of the individual banks. So the bank puts an advert out there, we paying you 13% interest and, and the money tends to, to leave that. Or bad press comes out about a bank and you move around. So this is very much driven um, by the individual actions of the banks and the market's perception of uh, the bank. So it's much more, much harder to actually model this and, and predict this. But what you can do is, is look at these movements and say, well, if a big market share drop tends to correspond to a big drop in total deposits in the market, what does that do um, to the bank? So those are the two key um, areas to, to stress. Like I mentioned, you need to put the, the puzzle together. Um, so you need to say, well, if you have these deposits in the market, there's flows between deposits um, and investments, and maybe you make a bit more profit if, if people move their money from cash in, into deposits. Um, you have an internal bank strategy, so do you now turn off the taps, you're heading for a crisis, suddenly people can't get personal loans anymore, what kind of a reaction um, comes in there? Um, and then also not to, to forget about um, operational risk. So. The European uh, regulators have handed out enormous fines. Uh, the Prudential Authority haven't yet done that, but those kind of risks you, you need to bear in mind. Um, there's risk to your facilities, there's risk to fraud. So if you think about Standard Bank and, and all the, the cash that was withdrawn in, in Japan, so those kind of risks also come into it, but from a, a pure economic perspective, and if you put in an economic stress, you need to make sure your deposits and and your loans and advances are adequately modeled and, and that you cover those, those risks. That's just a, a brief background um, of, of stress testing and, and top-down stress testing. Um, like I mentioned, there's a lot more, more detail behind this. So when, once you get into the bottom-up models and, and all the specific data, you, you find some very interesting relationships and some very interesting features for, for the sub-portfolio, sub so retail customers and wholesale customers. Uh, but hopefully this just gives a, a broad overview of the terms of the regulations that are coming and what to bear in mind for stress testing. Okay. Uh. Um, so we have some time for questions um, from the audience for Kodai. So maybe I can start with one. Kodai, just looking at some of the modeling that's being done, mm. Um, how advanced is the state of the art of that sort of modeling in South Africa? Um, and if I could ask a second part to that question, have people tried applying machine learning and other more advanced techniques to those sorts of models? Or do regulators favor, I guess, simpler and more explainable types of modeling approaches? Yeah. So I think in terms of sophistication, it varies wildly. So it varies between institutions, it varies even within a bank you might find that one business unit has applied very detailed and very sophisticated modeling, whereas um, other business units follow a more um, approximate and, and judgment-based approach. So we do see big variation. I think uh, the South African market as a whole um, is not yet as mature as, as Europe and the US, um, and that's because that big regulatory stick isn't yet there. Uh, so the European banks only caught up and started building sophisticated models once they got regulatory fines and directives to, to improve their models. Uh, but there's definitely pockets of, of models. So the banks need to price and, and forecast um, already, and they need to produce their ICAPs every year. 
So I'd say, yeah, it, it varies wildly. In terms of machine learning models, um, so we start seeing machine learning models um, coming in more on, on the pricing side, uh, managing fraud risk, um, monitoring traders, um, call centers. So that's where it's starting to, to come in. Uh, the regulators are, are not very fond of black box models. Um, so that's where the key challenge from a machine learning model, that you, you can apply it and you, maybe you can apply it in isolation to say, model the credit risk of individual personal loans and machine learning models will give you a very good answer there. But if you were to deploy a machine learning model for, let's say, a stress test as a whole, uh, you're going to struggle to explain what's the key drivers and, and why it's going where it's, where it's going. So right now, I think it would only get to a regulatory level and being applied there once it's, it's a lot more mature. So it will come through the uh, less regulated areas first and, and then make its way into the regulation. But even so, um, you need to be very careful to, to be, make it explainable. So I see it coming in, in pieces. So modeling specific credit risk or maybe modeling customers that are more or less likely to withdraw their, their deposits. Okay. Um, any other questions for Kunai from the audience? Uh, thanks for the presentation. Um, regulators themselves apply margins to what they might regard as best estimate uh, limits. And there are many reasons for these, but one of these is externalities, right? That the, the impacts of a bank's activities uh, have risks on uh, stakeholders outside of the bank themselves, and so yes. the bank doesn't have uh, economic motivation to manage those risks. Do you have any sense of whether regulators, I'm thinking particularly of uh, regulators in the larger economies, are running models themselves to calibrate the margins that should be applied to the banks? And here I'm, I'm referring back to the lesson we learned from the previous presentation, that if the regulators are unduly conservative, then that imposes a cost on the industry. I'm not asking you to answer his point that mm. the banks are getting away with murder, um, but <laughs> I think that's what roughly what he said. But, but are, they, are, they, are they taking a scientific approach to, to, uh, to, to this, this problem? And I'm also not asking you to answer for the South African regulator. Yeah. Thanks. So that's precisely the reason why the, the UK and, and the Fed actually build their own models. So that's why they collect industry-wide data so the individual banks can give the regulator a very good view of their specific risks and that gives the regulator some insight around what are some of the key drivers at an individual bank level. But then they build these top-down models and models based on, on industry-wide data. And the idea there is really to capture, for example, flows between banks and if a specific stress would affect a pocket of, of banks. Um, so they are focusing on that. Um, what isn't yet in place is, is links between different sectors. Um, so you might be able to say, well, okay, loans by themselves or derivative instruments by themselves or, or deposits and what it does to the banking sector. But if you say, well, asset managers have deposits in the banks or they stop funding the banks and you hit liquidity crisis at the same time, how do those things uh, interact? And that's when you start getting to the, the conglomerate uh, regulation and I bring all these pieces together. But right now, I think they're, they're getting to a point where they can model the banking banks together but the next step is, is to make those links, and that's the only good way to, to capture the financial sector as well. But it's immensely complex. Okay, so we have time for one more. Or for Cornet. Um, Cornet, so basically the um, South African Reserve Bank historically focused on the bottom-up approach. How far are they, according to what you could see, 
um, advanced in, in terms of applying a top-down approach. So it, it also starts by different risk types. So yeah, the regulator and, and the South African Reserve Bank start off by being more reliant on the banks. So telling the banks, do your bottom-up ICAP, explain to us what, what drives your, your stress. Uh, but they're starting to, to develop models. But it also starts in, in pockets. So um, I get the sense, and, and the regulators often publish papers in terms of what they're doing, I get the sense from a credit risk perspective, uh, there, there's models, there's good challenge coming through from the regulator. Um, from a deposit perspective, uh, market risk perspective, operational risk perspective, it, it, it's still evolving. Um, so. I think that it's in development, but right now it's definitely not to the same level as, as Europe. Um, and credit risk and deposit also not on the same level. So credit risk a lot more sophisticated. Corne, thank you so much. Um, please join me in thanking Corne, and he has a small, small.